I want to invite you to turn with me once again to the Gospel of John, uh, John chapter 15. As you make your way to John chapter 15, uh, I also want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll begin in verse 18. Let's stand together and read God's Holy Word. Just shortly before Jesus makes his way to the cross, he says to his disciples in verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I have said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Let's pray. Father, it is no secret that we live in a world that is filled with hatred. Even the events of the past few days, we have witnessed this in very uh, vivid ways. And so, uh, as we open your word, as we seek to learn uh, about you and your character, about uh, the person and the work of your son, the Lord Jesus, we ask God that we would be attentive. We ask that you would help us to unpack uh, this section of Scripture in a way that would uh, be of encouragement to us, that you would feed uh, the people of God, that they would be well served today. God, we trust you as we ask each week to do a, a good work of grace here in the hearts of your people at Christ Fellowship. We commit this time to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to ask a question this morning, and I I think I already know the answer. The question is, have you ever been persecuted for your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? If you have been walking with Jesus for any amount of time, the answer to that question will no doubt be yes. If you have never been persecuted, then brace yourself, because uh, it is coming. The first major persecution of the church took place during the reign of Nero. Some of you are aware that a fire broke out in the city of Rome in July AD 64. And even though most people had a pretty good idea that it was Nero, an egomaniac, an absolute narcissist, who was actually responsible for the blaze, he actually blamed the Christians It was the Christians who were blamed by Nero, and as a result, they were thrown to wild animals. These Christians in the first century were tortured. Many Christians were crucified. In fact, some Christians were placed on posts on the outskirts of the city, and they were basically shoved down on these posts, and fuel was placed upon these Christians, and they were lit 
And some church historians note that the people could see the Christians burning on these posts on their way on the outskirts of the city. Here's what we need to understand on this day. Even though you have never seen such a sight, even though you have probably not endured the kind of persecution that the Christian, Christian community faced in the first century, we need to understand this, that the same hostility demonstrated toward Christ followers in those days continue in our day to smolder in the hearts of the unbelieving people in our world. Perhaps you've experienced opposition or persecution like this, albeit on a smaller scale. You are opposed by a friend because of your support for a a local crisis pregnancy clinic. Perhaps you are ridiculed, on the other hand, for your lack of support for the ungodly group that we know as Planned Parenthood. Perhaps you are mocked because of your belief in the inerrant Word of God. You may be maligned for your integrity in the marketplace. You may be scorned for the stance that you take as a, as a Christian parent or grandparent. As we have the opportunity to bring uh, Titus before you today and, and dedicate him to the Lord, what a, what a pleasure that is. But know this, that Titus, as he grows up, like all of us have experienced, when he trusts Christ... Get ready for the persecution. And mom and dad, who will lead him to that personal faith, brace yourself for that persecution. We're in this together. You may be here today and you have been ridiculed for your stance on the so-called phenomenon that we have learned as same-sex marriage. You take a, a strong statement. You have a strong belief that marriage, according to sacred scripture, is between a man and a woman exclusively. And you are mocked for that. You are maligned for that. Perhaps you are taunted for believing stories of the Bible. You believe that a a whale swallows a grown man whole and then barfs him out onto the beach three days later. You believe that a, a shepherd boy slayed a giant with a stone that came from a slingshot. Or even better than that, you believe that three men were sent to a pit of fire, and they escaped that pit of fire as the Lord Jesus Christ rescued them, speaking of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Perhaps you are sneered at for believing that the Lord Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, that He is the only way to find salvation. He is the only way back to God. He is the only way that you can have your sins forgiven. Well... The title of the message this morning is A Pathology of Hate. And of course we know that a a pathology is the science of causes and effects of diseases. In this case, the disease that we want to discuss briefly is the disease of hatred. It was only a few nights ago that Jerrine and I sat in front of the television, as many of you did, and we were watching the The peaceful protest, it appeared to be a peaceful protest. And then as we watched the protest in New York City, 
As we watched on Fox News, that peaceful protest turned from New York City to Dallas. And we were amazed at at some of the things that were happening on the streets of Dallas. And I'll never forget this moment. It's like the day when the space shuttle exploded. You remember that day? You remember where you were and what you were doing. You remember the day, uh, that morning of 9-11. You you know where you were and what you were thinking and what you were doing. This is that moment for me. I'll never forget it. When I said to Dreen, I said... Why are those people running? That lady, remember the woman was running like this. I said, she looks scared. What is going on? Were you there? Were you watching? And then moments later, the camera panned and you saw an officer face down on the ground. I said, that something is not right. And then a few moments later, there's another officer face down on the ground. And within a few hours, we learned that five police officers... And around a dozen other police officers have been shot. Five of those have been killed by a sniper who ambushed these heroes. And so this this week we have seen hatred in, in living color before our very eyes. And so clearly there is a tension that exists in our, our communities and in our cities that needs to be addressed. But our passage this morning specifically addresses the hatred that unbelievers have for believers. Jesus, in very vivid terms, unpacks what the hatred looks like from the unbeliever to the believer. I want to ask this morning, what is the rationale behind that hatred? And we will discover and respond to the unmitigated hate that is expressed toward the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say once again, if you have never experienced it, brace yourself. Because Paul says very clearly in the New Testament that anyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. So look with me briefly this morning at two very important headings. The first is the reasons for this hatred. And the second is the rationale for the hatred. First of all, the reason for the hate. I need to tell you that as we study this passage together, that the word hate or hatred occurs at least seven times in these verses. That should be intriguing to you. That the Lord Jesus Christ, from verses 18 to 25, uses the, the word hate or hatred at least seven times. It is a word that comes from a Greek term that means to detest or to abhor. To detest or to abhor. Now, I might be on thin ice on this one, but most of us know that Chris Veldman doesn't like vegetables. And he is going to probably disagree with me on this one, but I think he would say, I don't like green beans. I don't like asparagus. But my suspicion is, if his mother is a little bit like my mother, he was probably taught somewhere along the lines that, Chris, you don't hate anything. Now, Chris might respond with, yes, I do. I hate asparagus. I hate green beans. You like corn, though, don't you, Chris? Yeah, I've been told that corn's not a vegetable. <laughs> and I shouldn't tease Chris too much because I don't like most vegetables either. <laughs> but I don't hate them. <laughs> the word hate here is more than mere dislike of vegetables. It is an utter abhorrence. It is to detest something or someone. And in this case, the someone is followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, closely linked to this this word hatred 
This notion of abhorring someone or detesting someone is the idea of persecution. In other words, whenever someone expresses hatred for someone, persecution is bound to be close behind. And this was the experience of the the disciples in the first century. This was the experience of Christians throughout church history, and this is our experience as well. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe I'm odd, but I don't think so. Being hated is never fun. And we have, most of us have learned from, from many years ago when we were children, we were taught sticks and stones can break my bones, but names can never hurt me. That is the biggest pile of nonsense I've ever heard, right? Because when someone calls you a name, you can say, I don't care what they say about me. But what do you think of later in the evening when you're sitting there by yourself? You say, that, that hurt. That hurt to be called that name. Moreover, being ridiculed for trusting in a Savior that cannot be visibly seen is never enjoyable. But hatred expressed toward people of faith is, in fact, a reality we must face in our lives. Now, Jesus Christ gives some reasons for that hatred. And these reasons can be summarized in what I like to call three commitments. Commitments that are important to our lives in this world as Christians. Here's the first commitment. The first reason that the unbelieving world will express sooner or later hatred toward you and toward me. The first reason is this, is we have a commitment, we have an allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the pattern in our passage begins in verse 18. And look at this as a very logical or illogical, if you will, pattern. Verse 18, Jesus says to the disciples, If the world hates you, and the implication is, and they will, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And so the pattern here of hatred begins, you see, with hatred that is expressed toward God. The world not only hates God, they hate the word of God, they hate the truth of God. Hold your finger in John chapter 15 and turn several books to the right with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I want to read nine verses here and see if we can get a better idea, a better understanding of the hatred that the world, and we'll examine that term here in a moment, but the hatred that the world has for God, the word of God, and the truth of God. 1 Timothy 3.1, Paul says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at at a knowledge of the truth. 
Just as Janus and Jambres oppose Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. The Apostle Paul also demonstrates the inner workings of the the unbelieving heart in Romans chapter 1. He says it like this. For although they knew God. I want to stop there. Some of you have friends who claim to be atheists. I remember my my late grandfather used to say this. There's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. And my grandfather, who was in World War II, had the opportunity. That's probably not the right word. But he had the the opportunity to, to sit for hours in a foxhole. And he did learn this, there is no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. The Word of God tells us very plainly that every human being recognizes the existence of God. And Romans chapter 1 bears that out. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. I like the Russian translation of this verse. Claiming to be wise, they became crazy. They became crazy. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Over in Romans chapter 8, Paul says it like this as he unveils really the the essence of the, the unbelieving heart. And by the way, this was all of us before we came to personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Back in Romans chapter 3, Paul says that none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. He says there is no fear of God before their eyes. And in one of the citations, I have probably uttered more in the last four years at Christ Fellowship than any other comes from the pen of Jonathan Edwards. And this is a quote that if you were new to it this morning, will sound a bit shocking to you. Those of you that have heard it a dozen or more times, it's probably still shocking to you. Edward says this. He says that the unbelieving heart is like a viper, a poisonous snake, hissing and spitting poison in the direction of God. That is the the accurate portrait of the unbelieving heart. That is the accurate portrait of my unbelieving heart before God drew me to himself. Now, the hatred of God extends naturally then to the hatred for the people of God. For those who hate God, they will have a a natural hatred for the people of God. And so it is clear that since the world hates Jesus, it follows that the same hatred extends to anyone who is a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus reminded his followers, he reminded his disciples, and he reminds you and I this morning that this indeed will be the case. He says in Mark 13, 13, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
You see, we all have, and I hope we all have, unbelieving friends. We all have unbelieving friends. At least we should. But there's something that we learn about those friends that we love and cherish and adore. And indeed, we should love them and we should cherish them and we should adore them. But sooner or later, the vitriol that the unbelieving world has for us will emerge. Maybe it's because of your views, as I said earlier, on abortion. Maybe it's because of your views on Scripture. Maybe it's because of your views on an exclusive Savior. But remember this, the hatred, the vitriol will be expressed sooner or later. The world hates us because of our biblical convictions. The world hates the fact that we refuse to participate in the unfruitful deeds of the darkness and rather, as Ephesians 5.11 says, expose them. I remember a friend of mine almost 25 years ago. I was in his wedding and he and the other men in the wedding were going to head to a very, very sinful place to spend part of an evening. I'll just leave it at that. And first of all, I can't even believe that he would even even think that I would attend such a place or go to such a place. And when I found out about it, I confronted him. You know what's very interesting about that story? I never heard from him again. Why is that? This is a this is a person I love. A friendship that I cherish, but because I refuse to participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness and rather expose them, never hurt anything again. You see, the world hates our our bold resolve. Have you learned that? That when you have bold resolve, people get uncomfortable with that. The world hates our love of the truth. In fact, many in the world don't believe that truth is even a thing that's a part of reality. And so when we make bold statements of truth, the world gets very uncomfortable with that. And so the first commitment that we have, it's the first reason the world hates Christians, is our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a second commitment that's found in verse 19. Jesus says, if you were of the world, and the implication is here, you're not. If you were of the world... The world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The second commitment we need to recognize is our aversion to the world. You might say our repudiation of the world. Paul says it like this in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to the what? To the world. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and pleasing. Now, we need to stop and ask what, what is this whole idea of the world? The world, the word world, comes from the Greek word cosmos. And cosmos is simply this it's the system that we are a part of. It's the system that is diametrically opposed to God, the Word of God, and the Kingdom of God. 
When you see that word world, wherever it, where, when the, uh, the, the writer of 1 John, when John the Apostle says, don't love the world or the things in the world or the love of the Father is not in you, what he's referring to is not that beautiful globe that is hanging in the universe. Rather, he is talking about the ideology of the world, the system, that philosophical or ideological system that is opposed to God, that is opposed to the Word of God, and opposed to the kingdom of God. Let me give some examples. When your children are taught the theory of evolution, that comes from the cosmos. That is, of the world. I read a book a few weeks ago by a Christian author proposing the notion of theistic evolution and downplaying atheistic evolution, both of which are erroneous notions. And so here I write, or I read a book by a, a Christian author who affirms theistic evolution. That is that God used an imperfect process to create a perfect world. Does that make sense to you? You see, a, a Christian writer is, is using the, the rationale of the world, of the cosmos. When a counselor encourages a woman to get an abortion, that is coming from the cosmos. When the Supreme Court legalizes same-sex marriage, that comes from the worldly system. When a university professor undermines biblical authority, that comes from the cosmos, the worldly system. When an accountant convinces you, you need, to, you need to shave some things off. You need to cheat on your taxes. You need to cook the books. That comes from the worldly system. Is this getting too close for comfort? When we talk about cheating on our taxes, same-sex marriage, abortion on demand, the theory of evolution... Worldly language goes something like this. Hey, live for today. Live for the moment. The, the guy with the most toys wins. Or truth is relative. The Word of God addresses the pattern of the world. Paul says that the, the worldly system is, is crooked and twisted. He says that the worldly system is hollow and deceptive. He says that, that the world, the worldly system is at war with God and His kingdom. When a preacher moves away from his notes, that usually means it's a sign of trouble. I'm going to do that for just a moment. Because there is, a, there is a, an ongoing debate going on right now in the theological community. Where a group of Christians is attacking another group of Christians. And I want to say, listen. Listen here. The world, the worldly system hates believers. Why can't the Christians... Why can't the Christians step back a little bit and show our love for one another? We need to be careful here. The reality is this. The world recognizes that we have an aversion to the world. They can detect a difference in the followers of Christ. Or I should say, they should be able to detect a difference in the followers of Christ. And may that serve as a challenge for you today. If the people that you work with, if the people in your neighborhood, if the people that you spend time with, if they don't know that you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, may that change this week. Additionally here, Jesus says this in verse 19, I chose you out of the world and therefore the world hates you. I'm fascinated with the, with the verb chose there. 
Because the verb chose is written in the middle voice. And that means this, that he chose us by himself and for himself. That is, he had his attention and his affection set on the people of God. And that should make you well up with a heart of worship. You see, our attitude now is everything. The imperative that emerges in Scripture is, do not love the world or the things in the world. And so please understand that if you obey that imperative, if you say, Pastor, I I am working with all my heart to not love the world or the things in the world, the, the consequences of that will be this. The world will what? They'll hate you. They'll see that you have an allegiance to Jesus. They'll see that you have an aversion to the world. But there's a third commitment that we have that gets us in hot water, and that is our association with Jesus. Look at verse 20. Once again, Jesus says to his disciples, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant, that is a slave, is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. You see, our association with Jesus is what gets the world upset. Jesus shows now the link between hatred and persecution. Persecution here means this. It means to subject someone to systematic harassment and to attack a person for their religious beliefs. And we see this hatred and this persecution, not only in our culture, but we see it bubbling to the surface in the book of Acts. And I want to show you a few places where that occurs. Hold your finger in John 15 and and move over to the book of Acts. Move over to the book of Acts. And I want to show you three very basic passages that will help you to get a better understanding of the persecution that was taking place in the first century church. The first one's interesting. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the context here is that Stephen had just been stoned. And a guy by the name of Saul, who you should know very well, who was later converted in the next chapter, in Acts chapter 9, who now we know as Paul, he actually approved, he put his stamp of approval on the stoning, on the martyrdom of Stephen. This is before he was a Christian. Notice what the heart of Paul was like before he was a Christ follower. Verse 1, And Saul approved of his, that is Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they are all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. There's so many challenges in this passage, but I remember reading a book several months ago where the author said in so many words, did you know that the next Apostle Paul, the next Billy Graham, the next great Christian leader could be passed out in his bed right now, inebriated? Do you know the next great Christian leader might be in Iraq right now, killing people? Do you know the next Christian leader, the next great Christian hero might be a leader in ISIS? And so we never give up on people, do we? Is we, we pray for the lost, we love the lost, and we realize here that the Apostle Paul, who was in Acts chapter 8, Saul, the one who was ravaging the church, going from house to house, persecuting people, 
is the one responsible with writing a good portion of the New Testament. Look over with me at Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, verse 19, concerning the church in Antioch. Luke says that now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So we have this this great persecution that arises in the city in Antioch. And then look over in Acts chapter 13. And this one to me is absolutely fascinating. This is what I like to call the the Jewish-Gentile shift. Because in verse 47, the passage says in Acts 13 that the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, you remember that up to this point, the Gentiles have been excluded from the promises of the gospel. And now God brings them in. He enables them to embrace these promises. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many who were appointed, that is elected, that is predestined to eternal life, believed. Now here's, here, here's this, this idea of the Gentiles who are so excited that they can participate now in the great plan and purposes of God. They, they have been called into fellowship with the living God and can serve in His kingdom. Verse 49, And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. That is my prayer for Christ Fellowship, for Everson, for Nooksack, for Sumas, for Linden, for Bellingham, that the word of God would spread. And what do you think happens when the word of God spread? Whenever you see revival hits a church or a community, what happens? Verse 50, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. See, when revival comes, the enemy puts it into overdrive. My hero, Jonathan Edwards, who had this opportunity to be involved in the great awakenings with George Whitfield and other great men of God, what happens? He's fired. He's fired in Northampton, really at the height of revival. And so you see this pattern in Scripture where God moves in a mighty way, where there's persecution and the world comes in crashing like a flood. And so why does the world hate followers of Jesus? We see it very plainly. We have allegiance to Jesus We have an aversion to the world, and our association with Christ causes the world to hate us. Well, I want to move on to the second heading and have you look with me at the rationale for that hate. We want to take it one step further and look at verses 21 to 25 in John chapter 15. Here, I see two concerns. There are two concerns that will serve as the rationale for this hate. The first concern is that worldly hate is rooted in ignorance. Worldly hate is rooted in ignorance. Look at verse 21. Jesus says, But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. That is the name of Jesus. Because they do not know him who sent me. Now, if we pay close attention to, we have to ask, Who is the him 
And who did him send? Well, the him very clearly points to God the Father. And God the Father, we know, in eternity past, made an agreement, came into covenant with the Son, and would send the Son to save sinners. And so Jesus here says that worldly hate is, uh, is, is Christians rooted, or worldly hate of Christians is rooted in ignorance. And Jesus help us, helps us now to understand that the hatred of Christ followers is simply because of him. It's not because of us. It's because of him. And he shows how the worldly hatred is the result of ignorance. And it's as simple as this, is they do not know God. If you have a highlighter, you like to write in your Bibles, would you highlight that word know? That comes from the Greek word that means a first-hand and intimate knowledge. Now, on the one hand, I've already argued that every unbeliever knows about the existence of God. This is a different word here. This is experiential, intimate knowledge. I know about the President of the United States, and so do you. But I don't really know him. I have never shaken his hand. I have never sat down to share a meal with him. I have never been to the Oval Office. And so I I know of his existence, and I actually accept his existence, but I don't know him in an intimate way. I don't know his hopes and his dreams and his longings and his fears. Here now, Jesus says that the unbelieving world, they don't know in an intimate way God the Father. But there's a second concern you see is already on the screen before you, and that is that worldly hatred of Christians is rooted, as we've already seen, in a hatred of God. But I want to pose this question and ask, what is it that's behind the hatred of Jesus Christ? And here, what Jesus does is he he pulls back the curtain. He opens up the curtain and he shows that whoever hates him has this, this deep, smoldering hatred of God in their heart. John MacArthur says of verse 24 that the the Lord was not speaking here of sin in general, but rather of the specific sin of willfully rejecting him in the face of full revelation. That is the most serious sin of all, MacArthur says, because it is the only one that is not forgivable. Ultimately now, the hatred of Christ and his followers, while sinful as it is, it ultimately fulfills the intended plan of God. Look with me at verse 25. Jesus says, But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. We've seen the hatred that the world has for Jesus, the hatred that the world has for God the Father. Why do they hate Jesus? Why do they hate his Father? They have no cause. Psalm chapter 35 verse 19 helps us here. It says, Let those who rejoice over me, who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those who wink the eye, who hate me without cause. We've seen this morning the reasons for the world's hatred of of God. We've seen the reason and the rationale for the hatred of the living God. But the question remains for us, now what? Pastor, where do we go now? How shall we who strive to faithfully follow Jesus respond now to the pathology of hate? 
How many of you are like me? When someone hates you, your first response is like, bring it on. Okay, I'll take you on. Let's go out to the backyard, right? And that's not the godly response, is it? And so how do we as Christians respond? I want to provide you with several several very basic principles to, to take with you today as we close. Number one, we respond as follows. We should not be surprised, first of all, when the world hates us. I think this is probably the one I struggle with the most, is I still to this day, I, 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 am, I am over and over and over again shocked at how much the world hates Christ's followers. But Jesus says it in John fifteen eighteen: if the world hates you, and as if he's saying, and they will, know that it hated me before it hated you. Secondly, we should keep worldly hatred in proper perspective. 1 John 4, 4, John the Apostle says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in the world is greater than he who is in the world. Number three, we should expect persecution, which has been kind of a theme of this message. Just get ready. The, per- the persecution is coming. John sixteen thirty three. Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Number four, we must continue to pursue godliness in the midst of persecution. You see, when the world persecutes us, we don't take them to the back alley. When the world persecutes us, we don't, we don't come uh, lashing back at them. Rather, we expect it. Jesus, once again, is very clear about our response. Paul also says in Romans 12, 12, to rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Number five, we maintain a godly perspective in the midst of persecution. Romans 8.35, Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He goes on to say in verses 37 to 39, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is when we can stand together and say, bring it on. You want to persecute the church? You want to persecute me as a Christ follower? Recognize this. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. Number six, I want you to remember who the battle is ultimately against. That we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Number seven, and probably the most difficult of all, is... That we must love our enemies in the midst of persecution. And Jesus said it best. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, if you're like me, this last one may pose somewhat of a challenge to you because I love politics. 
Drain knows I could just watch Fox News all day. I could just, I could watch the debates. I could watch the ramblings. I, I just love it. it. It is an absolute blast. But we must remember this, that while politics certainly does have a place in the life of a Christian, ultimately, politics is not the answer. The answer is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The answer is the gospel. Therefore, we continue with bold resolve to proclaim the gospel in the marketplace of ideas. Paul said in Galatians 6, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. You have heard me share this story likely many times from this pulpit. I have his picture emblazoned on the front cover of my Bible, and I've said it many times, and I will continue to say it, that I I look at his picture uh, every time before I preach, before I teach, because I, I am encouraged to know that when things get difficult for me, it will never be as difficult as it was for John Rogers. It was January in 1555, where John Rogers, a, a very prominent Bible translator and Protestant preacher, was led to the pyre. He was led to the stake, and he was asked once more if he would recant. And he replied that what he had preached, he would seal with his blood. Thou art a heretic, the sheriff responded. Rogers says... That shall be known at the day of judgment. I love John Rogers. The sheriff responds, Well, I will never pray for you. Rogers responds, As he's tied up above the wood, lighters ablaze, But I will pray for you, replied John Rogers. John Rogers sang psalms. Soon he was met by his wife and his 11 children. One who was an infant in her wife, his wife's arms. This sad sight, remarked John Fox, did not move him. But he cheerfully and patiently went on his way to Smithfield, where he was burnt to ashes in the presence of a great number of people, including his wife and 11 children. See, there is a pathology of hate that will follow us, that will pursue each of us all the way to the shores of the celestial city. May God strengthen each of us according to the riches of his grace as we bear witness to his matchless grace, even in the midst of unspeakable persecution. My own sense is this. We have no idea what persecution is like. My own sense is also that in the days ahead, we are going to learn what persecution is all about in the church that we will learn what persecution is like in the marketplace of ideas. And I believe that as a church family and as individual followers of Christ, that we are ready to face that challenge. That we will grow stronger spiritually, that we will walk with Jesus, that we will be empowered by the Spirit. And revival and reformation will take place at Christ Fellowship and in our community, that the gospel will begin to explode. But the result of that expansion of the gospel will very well, like the first century church experienced, be persecution. May God give us grace. May God grant mercy and great strength to his people as we move forward. We have a great 
hope, do we not? We have the truth at our disposal. We are gospel people. And we are unwilling to capitulate. We are unwilling to compromise. We are unwilling to go left or to go right. We will walk the straight and the narrow all for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all the saints of old would say, Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, sobering as it is, we recognize the hatred and the persecution that is expressed to us, the people of God. And I ask God that as, as we reflect on these things, that you would fill your people with great hope, that you would prevent them from experiencing fear or anxiety, that they would move forward with bold resolve, that we would expect revival, that we would expect reformation, that we would expect people to hear the gospel, that we would expect people to respond to the gospel. God, I pray that we would rally around this great cause of uh, global expansion of the gospel, starting right here in our little Jerusalem. God, I pray that the gospel would go far and wide, that as missionaries are sent out, that, that people would rejoice in Jesus. As the word of God says, let the nations be glad. Thank you for giving us that opportunity. I pray, God, that you would embolden this, your people, with these truths today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.